Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Bill Wilkins, a retired entrepreneur with a, a long history. How's it going? Fine. Nice to talk to you. It is, it is a pleasure to have you on. You are perhaps the most technically savvy, uh, we'll say, elderly. You, uh, that sounds really mean. You, you are old enough that I am amazed that your office looks almost exactly like mine. Ah, you mean it's disorganized? Uh, with with all the same computers that that I have around. Um, that there are sounds only two, only two that you don't see. <laughs> that it, it it sounds like I'm uh, being uh, I guess uh, a bigot somehow. Like old people can't have that stuff. I'll try not to do that. I don't think so. <laughs> do you, you think you do you think you're unusual? The, you should see the bikes in the cellar. <laughs> also, also uh, a major curiosity to me. Um, I think you mentioned in one of our emails that as long as I don't break any more bones on my fat tire bike. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I used to wake up in the morning here because we have uh, cross country skiing and the lake is frozen. We should mention where you are. Oh, okay. I'm in a... Yeah, if you're a status seeker, you would say, I live near Samaritz. If you're a climber, you would say that I live near some of the best climbing in the world. So I'm not a status seeker, but I came to this valley because it's famous for climbing and hiking and just generally mountaineering. Nice. Although I did spend I did spend the first five winter seasons here snowboarding. So uh, just to be clear, we are talking about Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've you've gotten around. Um, for kind of a dirt farmer from North Carolina who then went to work in England studying superconductors and superconducting research sponsored by the U.S. government. Um who was climbing and went through a windscreen of a mini and was in hospital for three months and then went to work in a climbing shop and then decided to start making tents. And being so stupid, I didn't know it was difficult to do, so I bought a sewing machine and started sewing tents together. So I have a long history. Yeah, let's, let's tell that story. <laughs> so you started in North Carolina. <clears throat> Yeah, I was kind of a farm boy in North Carolina in a place called Durham, which is famous for the university called Duke. I do have relatives in Durham. Um, not anymore. No, I do. Do you? Yeah. Astounding. And Asheville. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, okay, so was, you start there as a, a farm boy. Uh, is, you said kind yeah, of a farm boy. I was kind of a farm boy and... Um, how can I say this? I wanted to go to Duke. It was local. And I worked my way through Duke and studied electrical engineering and physics. And when I graduated, I, I had worked in a research lab there and met an English guy. And he said to me, why don't you go to England and work? And I said, okay. <laughs> he said, I have a contact with a company called IRD, which is International Research and Development in Newcastle-Lepentine. So I went there as a 
as a research engineer, research physicist. And while I was there, I went to the University of Lancaster to study for a master's degree in physics. But I started climbing as a hobby and taking people for weekend trips to the Lake District in Wales. And then I had a really bad accident because uh, I was with a guy in a Mini and we had virtually a head-on collision with another car and I went through the windscreen. And I was in hospital for months. And then the local, the owner of the local climbing shop came to see me and said, would you like to run my shop? So I never went back to physics and went to work in a climbing shop. And when I was there, I decided we should make clothing. Um, that company is now called Berghaus. And so I made clothing and then I went away to have a vacation and came back and the boss said, we've decided we want to stop manufacturing. They picked it up later, but they said, we want to stop. So I said, okay, goodbye. And walked out the front door and walked up Gray Street in Newcastle and went into every bank and said, I would like to borrow some money to buy a sewing machine. Why? I'm going to start manufacturing lightweight tents. And all of them said, you're crazy. But the last one, a bank manager called Ivan Watson, and he said, oh, that sounds interesting. Who are you? What do you do? Why do you think you do this? And he gave me 50 English pounds. <laughs> almost nothing. Yeah. And I, I bought a sewing machine and put it in my apartment and started, I bought a book on ladies' pattern cutting and started cutting patterns to try and make clothing in tents. And... Um, that's how I got started. I have so many questions. So okay. we'll back up for one second. Okay. <laughs> I hope you can remember because I can't. Oh, I've been taking notes. Um, <laughs> so in your, in your accident, in your hospitalization, what kind of injuries did you sustain? I went through the, mini, through the windscreen of a Mini after a head-on collision with another car, and I went landed upside down against the side of a stone-built pub. And when they came to pick me up, they took me to hospital. They didn't know whether I had a broken back, a broken spine, or anything. But I, I had problems with hips and knees. And But I was okay, because I was really quite fit. And the thing that really saved me was I was holding a rucksack full of climbing equipment in my lap. So the, the rucksack actually took most of the pressure when I put the windscreen out with my head, but then I dropped the rucksack and continued the journey. And you thought so, that stuff was only good for belay. Yeah, I was really, really <laughs> lucky. I really was lucky. I, I should have been killed, but I was okay. So were there broken bones, uh, any damage that prevented uh, your current uh, sporting activities? Um, Not really. Most of my... Most of my things now are from overuse. Hmm. You know, this winter, I was riding 16 kilometers across a frozen lake every day. And this afternoon, and I needed something in a village called Silvaplana, which is six kilometers away. And I went there and back in about 20 minutes. I'm really, I'm really lucky to be fit. I am actually really amazed. I don't know if I could do that at 38 
well, please come and visit me and we'll do some really nice mountain bike rides and some great walks. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love mountain biking. I, uh, I was, I, I used to race and I really? tried, yeah, I got on a, a fat tire. Like when I quit racing, uh, front, front shocks had basically just come out. Rock shocks had just become popular on the racing circuits. So I got on a full suspension fat tire bike this year and <laughs> it was so different from everything I knew. Yeah. Uh, just the, everything I knew about the way you take a hill, the way you hit a log, like all of this was different. I ended up crashing and crashing at like six miles an hour, <laughs> just kind of wobbling until I fell off the edge of the trail, which was on a hill, of course, but um, plenty of trees to stop me. Uh, I went up the handlebars of my uh, fiberglass mountain bike and broke my right shoulder last October. And, and I'm lucky because it's fine now. That is very lucky. Yeah, yeah. And it was exactly that kind of thing. Some people here work in the forest left a log across the the forest track. And I came around a curve and I was going too fast and I just couldn't stop. The bike stopped, but I kept going. There is a section of one of the tracks locally. We have I live in the bluffs of the unglaciated territory of Minnesota. Um, mm -hmm. Very, very good climbs and falls. And uh, there's a section of the trail called the graveyard. And it's it's a, a dirt dirt and rock single track that goes around a tight bend with a drop off on the side that literally goes down a hill about 600 feet into a graveyard. And uh, it has been the source of many of my friends like year long hiatus from mountain biking due to yeah. severe injuries. I'm sure I have seen broken collarbones, broken shoulders, uh, no, I saw one femur fracture, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. I always take that section very slowly. Yeah. Um, wise. <laughs> but then again, I, it turns out I'm really bad at biking these days. So, okay. So you, you have the accident, you're in the hospital. And then what, how, did you not like physics? Um, I was studying superconductors, and, and the guy that I was working for in IRD was a theoretical physicist. So we, we had a problem. I was very practical, okay? And he was a theoretical physicist. And so we, we got on fine, but I just really fell out of love with physics and fell in love with climbing. And then after this accident, I told her I went to work for a climbing shop, which was called Elding yeah. Mountain Center, suggested we make packs. That's a brand now, which is pretty well famous in Europe. And I think even does business in the USA called Berg House, which means mountain house. Sure, yeah. And then I started my own company, which is called Ultimate Equipment, which is why my nickname is Ultimate Bill. And I started designing and making lightweight tents and, and sleeping bags. And then that developed into me making clothing for other people. And finally, I just got bored. You know, I mean, I was 55 years old and working seven days a week. I mean, part of me, the only day of the year I did not work was Christmas Day. Because Christmas Day, I couldn't fly anywhere because everything else was closed. <laughs> so, you know, that that's really the true story. And then... When I was 55, I just sold everything and went snowboarding for five years. And then after five years of snowboarding, I got really bored. So I started again. 
do you frequently suffer from boredom? Um, only when there are no computers around. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that because uh, you also have a vast, vast amount of experience, especially in productivity apps. But um, so do, did you ever make uh, those bivouac tents that you can uh, attach to a rock face halfway up? Uh, no, but I did make tents for Chris Bonnington's first, I think it was Bonnington's first Everest expedition. I made some tents called box tents. And the only thing about them which broke was the corner brackets because it was square. And the company that I subcontracted the contract, the, the corner brackets used some hardened steel and of course when that got on Everest if there was any shock they just fractured sure yeah I yeah I just love product okay wait I have to ask was there a reason for so you're saying it was like a cube shaped tent a square tent a box tent why why would that be preferable to the the more standard like uh curved or angled top um well it it's kind of if you visit envisage these things as gigantic shoe boxes. Um, oh, so they're big. See, I'm imagining a coffin, basically. You can you can slip sleep three people in one. Oh, okay. Two people comfortably, but in fact, you could chop out a platform in a glacier or a mountainside and just put a box in it. Yeah. And you didn't. The only thing you needed was some guy ropes on the corner and some ice pegs around at each corner to hold it down. So it it was my take on, you know, practicality. Right. Well, and that does, it makes sense now because uh, you wouldn't have the steep angles that basically make the sides of the tent unusable for. Yeah. Days. The only thing it had to be was the, the top of the tent had to be strong enough to take a lot of snow and they were just very practical. It's, it's the way I've done almost everything in my life is being practical. You know, buy a sewing machine, learn how to sew, find some fabrics, try and make something. I'm really practical. See, I would say both practical and intrepid. Uh, you're willing to take some pretty big risks. Um, when people asked me that before, why did you do, do that? I said, because I was too stupid to know it wouldn't work. <laughs> People have often told me about uh, various things in my life that I'm very brave and I haven't always contradicted them. But in my head, I always think the line between bravery and stupidity can be very thin. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. I completely <laughs> agree with you. Uh, for, for me, it's an inability to imagine consequences. That's also true. It's <laughs> also true. Why did you do why did you do that overhanging route in the Lake District? Because I didn't know I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh did you ever get into bouldering? No, bouldering wasn't really a, a fashion then. Um but it was just about climbing and there were some routes in the English Lake District and, and that had been done and there were kind of guidebooks. So you would go and try. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, I would say that my, uh, I didn't know I had a fear of heights until I was halfway up, like a 200 foot climb. Okay. And I uh, realized that my, uh, we'll say, 
vertigo kind of counteracted any pleasure I got out of the second half of the climb. It was Mm -hmm. uh, mostly sheer terror for me, and I wasn't even that scared. It was just like an irrational. But I then I got really into bouldering because it's so technical and everything's like a a problem to solve. And when you fall off of one hold, you just start again and you have to like always start from the beginning until and they're short climbs. You you don't need uh, lead ropes or belay or anything. You just have a crash pad and pair of shoes and. It's it's great. Bouldering was not around when I was really, really active in climbing. But it's really gymnastic. You have to be very fit. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, in ways that, that normal people, using muscles that normal people never develop. They don't even know they have them. <laughs> Doing fingernail pull-ups on door jams. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You ever do crack climbing? Nope. Uh, well, I did some. I did some on limestone, but not serious. Yeah. Okay. Not like an there's entire a, ascent in a crack. There's a place in the the kind of the dales in England where there's a roof which is kind of you you climb this limestone wall. It used to be a waterfall. You climb this limestone wall, and then there's a roof. If if you remind me, I'll send you a photograph because I did the first ascent of the roof. It took a long time because it had to be bolted. So you were kind of lying flat in kind of belays in a handmade harness, putting raw plugs into this roof. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> okay, so quite serious when you when I say to you, okay, when you and some people ask me, why did you do it or how did you do it? You say because I was too stupid to know I couldn't do it. Yeah. This, this sounds like a theme and somehow you have accomplished a lot of those things that most people would ask, why'd you do that? Well, I'm very lucky. I've been quite healthy except for accidents. So yeah, I'm okay. You've been healthy enough to get past the accidents. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, uh, the company you're working for, says they're getting out of manufacturing and you just walk away. That seems rash. Well, I, I had spent a lot of time working really seriously. When I say I worked 365 days of the year, I worked out for maybe 20 years. And finally I just had enough. I needed a break. And I had a company doing textiles, advanced textile concepts. I had another one making garments for other people. And I had seven sports shops, Wilderness Ways. And I just sold everything. And I wanted to go climbing, so I came to Switzerland. And, and then, now, now I'm a Swiss. You, you, you have full citizenship in Switzerland? Absolutely. Congratulations. I'm no, longer, <laughs> I'm no longer a citizen of the USA. I no longer have a British residency. I'm just a citizen in Switzerland. That's kind of amazing for a, a farm kid from North Carolina. N- not a common story. Well, no, I haven't met I have not met another one. No, that's true. <laughs> oh, so then we'll, we'll jump forward for a second. Um, how did you get into snowboarding? Um, again, I had sport shops, wilderness ways. Uh, it was a first little chain in the north of England that got into snowboarding because I thought it looked like fun. 
So I bought a snowboard, and I think I must have been 55 years old or something, and I went to a little resort in Austria called Kutai, and I learned how to snowboard. And then you stayed there for five years? No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) I went a few times. And then when I went back to my company in the UK, okay, picture this probably 55, 56, 57 years old, wearing baggy trousers with a few chains here and there. And when I walked in my office, everybody thought I'd gone crazy. (laughs) I've seen the boss. (laughs) But I figured out that if you really want to sell things, it's easy if you do it by kind of living living it. That makes perfect sense to me. Well, it didn't make sense <laughs> in the north of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, kinda... so along the line, though, you you used a lot of computers, even after you left the, the physics world. Uh, when I first, my first computer was a big Toshiba laptop. I think it weighed 14 pounds. This would have been and... in the 90s? I'm not sure. Maybe it's a little bit earlier. Okay. Okay. And um, I just, I was fascinated by the things you could do. Um, I think the fascination was that you could do things like spreadsheets. And I remember VisiCalc very well. I think it was kind of the first spreadsheet. I can't remember the people's name that developed it. But along the way, okay, along this way, I'm kind of mixed up a little bit about the the route. I had sold a company to a British PLC, a British public limited company, with the kind of typical British chairman who rode around in a Rolls Royce. And he thought computers were rubbish. Um, and I think at that stage, I had one of the first um, Apple desktops. And I was using VisiCalc. And he came into my office one day and said, William, what have you got there? Oh, there's a shit. <laughs> I said, no, it's not. It's a computer. What can you do with it? I said, you can do spreadsheets and cash flow. What's a spreadsheet? And I showed him. Um, Within 10 days, every financial director and every reliance company had a computer on their desk. So, you know, it was, I don't know how to say. It just seemed natural to me because you could do things in spreadsheets then. There were no databases, but you could treat a spreadsheet like a database. Yeah. You could keep all of your customer details, phone numbers, you know, everything in. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, it was like, fun. I feel like a lot of the success you've had as an entrepreneur comes from an innate ability to see the utility and kind of uh, just feel trends coming. I don't know. I just, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it, I've done this my whole life. You know, I made the first Gore-Tex garment in the world when it was not Gore-Tex. 
It was a climbing guy I knew who was working for Imperial Chemical Industries in Harrogate in Yorkshire. And he was a climbing guy. And he said, I've got this funny thing. It's kind of funny. It could be a fabric. It's a membrane. Um, could you test it? I think maybe it's not only waterproof, but it's breathable. And I said, if you could send me some fabric, I'll make a couple of garments. So a guy who worked for me, who's still a good friend, Dennis Lee, who's a great designer. Dennis and I and another guy called Adam Woff, we took three garments and we drove to Scotland. And there's a climb called Claque Gully. But when the rains, it's, the water pours down this gully. We climbed this thing, which is like a waterfall in what was the first Gore-Tex garments in the world. So, yeah, I, I don't know why, uh, Brett, but it's like following your nose. Were there, a, were, were there a lot of these things that failed, though? Were there a lot of uh, kind of mistakes along the line? Um, yeah, if you make a mistake, you fix it. But I don't... I, I think going into... Yeah, the one big mistake I made was having made the first Gore-Tex garments in the world. <laughs> they came to me and said they would like for me to make Gore-Tex garments, and I refused. Okay, because I didn't think it performed well enough. And in those days, the breathability was not as good as, of course, it is now, kind of 20, 30 years on. So, yeah, big mistake was not getting in Gore-Tex. <laughs> okay. But a, it was just good, starting to sound like all of your guesses were working out. No, no, <laughs> no. But if you make if you make a product and you're clever and it's not working, you can in generally you can fix it. But there are lots of opportunities that come along your life and and you you can't see sometimes where they're going and you say no. Um I think I've been very lucky in having more successes and failures. Yeah, it, it sounds like that. Well, and I mean, any any truly successful entrepreneur will tell you that you have to make the mistakes. You don't you don't succeed if you're if you're afraid of failing. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. I said before, people say to me, "What what do you do your success?" I said, "Because it was too stupid to know it wouldn't work." And so if you, if you have that mentality, you know, you go snowboarding, you fall over, you fall over, but you get up and you try and you get up and you try and da, 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 da. But I think if you have that mentality, you can go really quite far. Yeah. And I'm sure you're the same. Absolutely. I, I, I do have some of those traits. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So back to computers. You've, mm -hmm. you've kind of, you, you had one of the first apples. I don't know if it was the Lisa, but definitely old enough that you don't call it a Mac yet or even a Macintosh. Yes. The, the British importer was uh, uh, a man and wife in Lancashire called Pete and Pam Computers. And I made covers for the very first Macs. You know, that yeah. was something else. So, yeah. And, but I love Macs. Yeah. And so you've, you followed that over time. Was the Toshiba your last PC? The Toshiba was the first and last PC. <laughs> so, okay, so you've you've seen the development of the OS for Apple computers. Uh, I don't even know what came before OS nine, OS eight, seven. 
I didn't get into OS ten. So I've I, never I have, seen the old. I I had a uh, a basement full of old apples in the UK, which I just threw away. <laughs> you know. But I threw yeah, away an Oscar and an old AT&T Unix machine and kind of a, a museum I had of really old mm-hmm. computers. I kind of regret that now. Do you regret losing your your classic memorabilia? Yeah, I. the only problem is where I live in Switzerland, as I say, everything is very expensive. And so if you, you, you can't afford to have a cellar full of stuff. You know, my cellar is mountain bikes and skis, and that's it. Very small sellers. <laughs> Despite their uh, sentimental value, I imagine your sports equipment is more valuable. Um, yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so what, what, uh, what are your favorite major advances in like the current Apple line, both hardware and software? Um, it's confusing. You know, for me, it's it's really confusing. I'm sitting here in front of a MacBook Pro. There's a MacBook Air to my right. There's an iPhone to my left. There are two iPads, two also to my left. <clears throat> I don't see how I could move my working life from a MacBook Pro to an iPad Okay, um, if I could have even a big iPad, you know, one of the kind of what is it, twelve inches or something? The Pro, yeah. Pro and could maybe run an email application next to OmniFocus, then I can see the power of that. But I can't imagine going on a long trip um, to Russia or to New Zealand and surviving. I'm looking to my left and right now at these devices. I I can't imagine not traveling without both an iPad and a MacBook. So yeah, because I'm I'm an app freak. I have 200 applications on my MacBook, and I don't need 200 applications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a sign of a problem, but I share the same problem. Thank goodness for another one. <laughs> I try Most everything. I have a, yeah. infinite curiosity. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. See, I'm I'm with you. Like, I can appreciate the advances in the MacBook. I mean, in the uh, iPad and the iPad Pro. But anyone who really wants to move any kind of true working life to mm-hmm. an iPad only has to really want to at this point. You, like you have to be willing to make concessions and figure out hacks and tweaks and I don't know if I could well grant grant like development which is a lot of my day absolutely not going to do on an iPad. You can you can do it. I do writing I, on my iPad. Yeah. I've actually found it really good for, you know, coffee house writing. Uh, yeah. But mostly games and video is what I use my iPad for. Yeah. Thus, I haven't I, been able to justify the purchase of a Pro yet. Well, I, yeah, and I think you're probably talking about the 12-inch one, too. I can't, yeah, 
I can't imagine not having a MacBook around. I just can't. I've, I've tried to move a lot of things to the the iPad, but I have the same problem with that. I have 200 applications on it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, my, my iPhone is entirely folders. Yeah. Uh, except for brand new apps that I'm not sure I'm going to keep yet. Those stay on a, a screen of their own, unfolded. So I remember to test them out. But yeah, I use I use folders at the top um, of maybe two or three pages or screens to kind of segment things into certain kind of categories yeah. of application. Yeah. Yes, I've I've spent a long time making a system that makes my <laughs> excessive collection of apps actually usable. May yeah. I please may I please have some screenshots? <laughs> I would gladly send you screenshots. I did a, uh, I think it was for, um, uh, Sean Blanc's thing where he shows people's home screens and they talk about their apps. Uh, I'll find uh, that link. Um, interesting. I have forgotten. That was a while ago, but the uh, the system remains much the same. Um, yeah. So as between the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. What uh, is there benefit to one over the other for you? I I personally prefer the Pro, um, but I'm thinking about visiting a friend in New Zealand, and if I do that, I was hoping I could make the Air work. Um, but actually, I don't think there's that much difference between. Um, Having to lug a pro around or having an AR around. I, uh, I can't. Yeah. My primary machine right now is the Retina MacBook Pro. It's a couple years <laughs> old. I miss my Air so much. Um, really? I am excited to get uh, one of the new MacBooks that is more yeah. of the form factor of the Air. But okay. Yeah, like this, this thing. I used to have a 17 inch MacBook Pro like just after the Intel uh, mm-hmm. switch. And that thing was a beast. And I used to bike to work with it. And uh, I had to get like pannier bags from my bike just to get it there without breaking my back. Um, But (laughs) so uh, when I got the air, it it's still in, in my mind, it was the best machine I ever had. It could do everything I needed to do, including, you know, compiling large applications and and it was so light and so easy to move around, and I I honestly do miss it. Well, I could personally, if I could only have one, I think the new MacBook Pro, the one that's got that funny menu bar or something on the yeah. screen, I think that could be, once you get used to it, I think it could be very productive. I'm fascinated by the touch bar. I have not actually even touched one yet okay me too Um, but the idea of an oled function strip that can change based on context i do like that yep i would i would like one but i would have to sell two (laughs) (laughs) is that the if you want to add a new regulation you have to get rid of two i have to ask permission (laughs) (laughs) yeah i get that okay good all right. Well, that brings us to the top three picks section. Are you ready for that? Um, 
Wow. Are we talking about software picks? Anything you want. It can be your favorite movie, your favorite pen, whatever's uh, of interest to you this week. Um, because I live so much with MacBooks, it's probably best to stick with apps. That is absolutely fine. I think my three picks for this week are uh, one. Where am I? Ha, I, I switched notes. Hang on. Yeah, I have oh two apps and one eyeball. Okay. Well, I, I can pick three apps really, really easily. All right. Well, then we will go one at a time back and forth. Okay. And uh, y y give me your first pick. Fantastical. Okay. Let's talk about Fantastical. Mm -hmm. um, there are times when I find it confusing, but I like the concept very, very much. And is this on Mac or uh, iOS? Both. Yeah. Okay. I, I like the fact that I can use it on one and it syncs to the other one. Yeah. I, I like it. What's confusing just, for you? Um, I think it's probably me confusing myself because I have, as I said, 200 applications. And so sometimes if I don't use it for a while and I come back to it, I think, uh-oh. But I do like Fantastic Help because it really is a good calendar. It is. And I like and the natural language input. Uh, it's the best I've seen. Yeah. I, I just like it. It's, it's, I've been with it since the beginning. Me as well. I will admit that I'm, I'm slightly concerned that you're confused because I wrote the help file for it on, <laughs> on the Mac. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I, I must pay more attention to the help function. <laughs> I, I can't say it was perfect, but I did put a lot of time into mm -hmm. um, trying to explain all of the features in a very accessible way. I, uh, I suffer from uh, taking certain things for granted when it comes to explaining things to uh, users who aren't familiar with the concepts that I just assume everyone has. But Well, I think the app, the app and its kind of ability to move between all my devices, and I just like it. Yeah. I think it's a it's a great app. I would say uh, for people who have, who aren't familiar with it, the uh, the basic concept is that it's a menu bar calendar uh, mm -hmm. on the Mac that you can pop up with a hotkey, type in lunch with Bill tomorrow at three, and it will create that event for you and even add Bill as an invitee mm -hmm. to the uh, to the event. Uh, handles setting multiple alarms and everything, much the way that calendars would do. And then the latest version of Fantastic Hell also has a full window view that you can pop up with Command Zero and have your like whole calendar laid out as a calendar uh, with great search and everything. You can search from the menu bar as well. It is, Incredible. yeah, it is, it, it's everything you get from using Apple's calendars with all the features you would like to add. Okay. And uh, and iOS is is much the same. I find it much more uh, the the swipe gestures on iOS for going through your calendar and for adding new events are top notch. Super. Flexibits did well. I will study it more. 
<laughs> All right. Well, my first pick is uh, it, it, this one comes from Carly Knight in the Slack chat, which you can get to uh, via signup.systemcast.net. Um, mm-hmm. I she she mentioned it and I started using it and I'm loving it. It's it's called Insight Timer, and it's a meditation timer, and it comes with uh, some basic like chime sounds and you can set intervals for like uh, uh, going through the meditation. You can also use it very effectively for um, some basic uh, yin yoga kind of stuff where you're holding poses for certain periods of time. And mm-hmm. it just gives you a nice ding, a very pleasant uh, kind of uh, chime sound. Uh, you can, with in-app purchases, you can add, I think, like a hundred different types of sounds to it. You can add guided meditations. It comes with some, but they have, I think they said they have like a billion hours of guided meditations available. And uh, it is quite a fascinating app. And the, the base version of it is entirely free. So I would easily recommend that. I've written it down and I'm going to have a look. Do you meditate? Um, not seriously. Well, I don't either. Seriously. But my, <laughs> my wife, who is from Yakuts, is encouraging me to learn how to relax. That, that can be a, a major health benefit. It's actually meditation actually has been key to me taming my ADHD without all the medications I used to take for it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's that's a huge benefit. Yeah. I like, I, I do like mindful meditation. It's not a lot of like inner searching and, uh, like enlightenment focused stuff. It's mostly just learning to center and to calm my mind. And it's been, really handy is that um is it really beneficial i find it extremely beneficial mm-hmm. yeah when i want to kind of um have a real break as i say i am either walking for a long way or getting on a mountain bike and riding in the mountains yep. but i think learning how to relax because i'm 75 years old and uh you know i'm a little bit conscious of my age because i want to climb again seriously this summer but if i can find an alternative i think it might be less risky (laughs) yeah well see i i use a combination for me it started with long walks my my i've lost a lot of weight and i've become a I, i sleep better i think better um and it did it started with long walks the problem with walks for me is once I know a trail, once I know a, a road, um, it does not at all quiet my mind. I mm-hmm. am thinking more than ever because the exercise is stimulating my brain. Uh, so that was beneficial. But learning to take the time to reset and to quiet my mind in combination with the benefits of exercise has been uh, a double threat. Really good for me. Well... I think I'm going to have to try to do things like that because it's quite obvious to me that I can't. I'm lucky to be 75 and as fit as I am. So 
I, well, I, I have to try to learn to, to relax another way. Yeah. Well, grab insight timer and, uh, and then go through one of the guided meditations and give it a shot for free. I will do. Thank All you. right. So what's your second pick? Um, this is probably a funny one because I don't know the app very well and I only use it for one thing, but I find it invaluable. And that's Devon Think Pro Office. I think that's I like, pick. I like it very much because I have tens of thousands of emails archived and I can find anything that I need easily. So, and it's, as I say, I don't know how to use it very well, but I only use it for that one thing, which is archiving emails. What and is uh, what feature of Devon Think Pro Office uh, makes it easiest for you to search through that many emails? Um, it's difficult to explain that really because both mostly what I do is archive emails from either a business or a person, and because I can easily remember the business or the brand, and normally check my contact list to remember the person, then if I think, uh, you know, I met this guy at a show in Germany and he said he could do this and da 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 da, and I can search Devon Think easy and find it. So as a, as a powerful database, I like it very much. Do you use the, um, the automated keyword and uh, kind of uh, taxonomy generation? No. That's no, the thing just, that's always most fascinated me about Devon Think okay. uh, is for people who want to get into tagging but don't want to go through 10,000 emails to set up a system. Mm -hmm. It's probably the best solution for beginning to associate common topics, uh, probably more for notes than emails. But I imagine I've never used it for email archiving, but I imagine what, it's much the same. What did you call it again? Uh, I can't remember exactly. They have it basically indexes uh, based on the text of every uh, note or email. Mm -hmm. uh, it adds keywords. Okay. And I can't remember what, uh, what their lingo is for. They're not called tags, uh, okay. but they, they function as tags where you can associate many things together based on topics and it's well, built in. Anything you have in there is already indexed. So check that I out. I will check it out. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, I've been I've been getting more into Devon Think. I, I've tried it many times over the past, and I always default back to plain text notes in like mm -hmm. NVALT and just from the command line using grep searches. I have loved the idea of Devon Think over every other Evernote or you know any other organization system. I just mm -hmm. haven't really been able to dedicate. I It stores its files as external spotlight indexed files. So you're not like, unlike Evernote, you're not dedicating everything into an ecosystem you can't get it back out of. So mm -hmm. that I appreciate. That makes it risk-free for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll have to, I'll have to do some studying. <laughs> it's funny that all your top picks, I'm, I'm making your research further. <laughs> So my uh, my second pick 
Let's see if the uh, the post hasn't made it up yet. It's currently my static blog is rendering, but mm -hmm. um, it will be up very soon. And it is a uh, bolognese sauce that I have been perfecting for over a year now, almost oh. two years. Um, it has been through seven major permutations, like completely different uh, methods and even ingredients. And I finally defined what I consider my ultimate bolognese sauce that I would put my name on and say, this is, and it's, uh, I don't think there is another recipe that matches this one. I am, I'm quite proud of it. Uh, I, it started when I, I was making homemade pasta when I first decided I'm going to see what this is all about. And I was making some really good pasta, but I was using, you know, sauce out of bottles and jars. And I wanted to make a sauce that I felt was appropriate for homemade pasta. So I started making uh, different variations of bolognese sauce. And um, which is uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a meat sauce. It has it's not as tomato based. It can be, but generally it's more about like uh, meat that has been simmered down for hours uh, mm -hmm. so that it's basically cooking in its own fat in the end. And um, it is it's delicious. And so I as of today, which is what, Tuesday, um, I have published the recipe that is the result of cumulative maybe a hundred hours of experimentation. Super. Um, I, there will be a link to it in the show notes and it should be up within the next 30 minutes. Because where we live is, as I probably said to you, is only half an hour from the border with Italy. Yes. So, uh, you, you may be, you may be familiar with the Bolognese region it's from. No, but <laughs> I know that, but I know the term Bolognese sauce very, very well. Yeah. yeah. Meat, tomato sauce. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. All right. Uh, so what's your third pick? Are we talking about, can I talk about software again? Oh, absolutely. My next one's okay. going to be software too. Okay. Um, well, there is something called a business time system. Okay. Which was, which was a diary system. And so at one stage in my former life before computers, I used the business time system because it's a diary and it's a notebook and you can have files in the back about customers and everything else. And that was a godsend to me because, you know, I could, I could have most of the information with me that I needed. And I think today, uh, because we have so many kind of GT apps or things that the, the one outstanding one for me is OmniFocus. Sure. Um, so I like that as an app and the fact that I can use it on an iPhone or an iPad or a MacBook is really powerful. So, so I'm going to assume given your uh, number of apps that you've tried multiple task management applications. I hope so. What, uh, what sets OmniFocus apart for you? Um, it's just powerful. Um, I, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's just <laughs> a really good task manager. 
or a real help to kind of get things done. Yeah. And I've been since the beginning. And I think this, again, it goes back to me um, because I was involved in importing fabrics, making garments with retail stores and selling all over Europe. I was always on the go. So I always needed a kind of a diary system. So I used the business time system. And then when I started to uh, live with Max, okay, I was always looking for something, some piece of software that I could use to control everything. And I tried all sorts of applications, but I think of, of all of them, OmniFocus is the best. And I think that because there's OmniFocus, you tend to look at the other Omni apps. Yeah. You know, and and Omni Outliner is really, really powerful. Yeah. So I just I just like it. And OmniGraffle? Um, um I have introduced OmniGraffle to some business friends and colleagues here in Switzerland. And one of them, I mean, he uses OmniGraffle for everything. He uses it in place of OmniFocus. Yeah, I've I seen mean, people do that. I'm astounded with what he does with it. But but I think it's also the way some people's brains work. Yeah, I think you so. Know, you know, like when I first started making things, uh, I really couldn't draw very well. But if you give me a piece of fabric and a sewing machine and a pair of scissors and some thread, I could make it. Nice. And yeah, <laughs> only this is kind of a getting things done workhouse. Yeah. I like it. Um, have uh, in relation to the uh, OmniGraffle as a GTD app, have you seen Curio? No. Curio is um, it's an all-around productivity, note-taking, brainstorming app that is it's huge. Uh, it can do mind maps, notes, email archiving. Um, every you define a space, and it's a just big blank area where you can then add any objects you want and draw correlations between them. Um, it is, it's massive and I love it. Uh, but it then like, what's that? It, it sounds like a kind of, um, mind mapping thing. It, it, it has, it has that functionality and mm -hmm. within any outline or uh, mind map you put into it, you can assign to do items with start dates end dates, like due dates, and then it'll give you a project management window that'll show you all upcoming tasks and everything. And it's something that truly can be used as a mind map based GTD application. Um, when we're finished, I will be searching for it instantly. <laughs> um, however, going back to your pick, I OmniFocus is my uh, task manager of choice as well. I just, okay. it's the most it's the most updated. It's the, it's the one that keeps progressing the most for me. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard wonderful things about to do app, like the number two do I, mm -hmm. I haven't gotten into it. Cause I just, after experimenting for years with everything from an old app actually called GTD, uh, around the same time as kinkless GTD, which became OmniFocus. Um, I've used things and, uh, I can't remember the name of everything. Um, I've, I've gone through like six or seven major to do apps and OmniFocus almost by default, because it was so 
frequently updated and new features were coming out so fast, it just became the one I stuck with. Mm -hmm. I remember using Things too. Yeah, Things was a great app. I really like the tagging options, but yeah. But somehow it didn't progress. Yeah, it, it really didn't. And OmniFocus on the iPad right now with the perspectives and the forecast views, it's awesome. I could I could really believe, but I know I will not be allowed to have a very large iPad <laughs> and have mail on one side and OmniFocus on the other. Yeah, I mean, so, but, but by default, that's how you would use a MacBook Air. So <laughs> why limit yourself? All right. So my third pick, I, I think you'll appreciate. Um, you're familiar with Pathfinder, right? Yes, it's on my list here. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about another one that I like even better these days. Um, it's called Forklift. Uh, Forklift 3 just came out. Uh, okay. It has for me all of the benefits of Pathfinder, including like dual pane views with tabs, uh, all of like the drop shelf, uh, everything like that. It is very centered around uh, remote like network drives so you can mount your Dropbox and S3 uh, drives and use them very uh, fluidly with local files. Um, but that has really become kind of a, a smaller feature of it. It is just, it's a wonderful, beautiful app. You can add your own commands to the menus uh, running uh, things like Unix tools on your files with, you know, right clicks or hotkeys and uh, you can do file management uh, using only the keyboard very easily, moving files around, copying files, duplicating. Um, and when I say moving files around, yeah, you can do that with like Finder, but mm -hmm. this gives you a very uh, clever kind of way to just arrow key and use space to select multiple files and then hit like F5 to move to the pane to the right. Um, I, I enjoy it greatly and version three is is wonderful. It's a huge, uh, huge move forward for it. I will be looking for it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm told I end up costing people a lot of money, but you know, it's only fair. I spent the money. I should make everyone else pitch in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's the end of the show. Um, okay. you can be found on Twitter at Wayla, which is at, yeah. U-E-I-L-A. Yeah. And is, my email address, the easiest one is just wayla at mac.com. There you go. Publicly announcing your email address. You have a good spam filter. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, <laughs> it, it's in a podcast. I won't put it in the show notes, which means it won't get scraped. You'll okay. be fine. Um, yeah. And then is there anywhere else you can be found online that you want to mention? No. The, my email is easily the best. All right. Okay. I, I am on LinkedIn, but it's Wayla. Just email is by far the easiest. Excellent. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. No problem. Um, I, was, I was really nervous and thought I would be nervous, but it's very relaxing. I really have enjoyed it. Thank you. I get you. that a lot. People, people are scared, but then they find out it's just a conversation. I think it helps yeah. that it's not live. You don't feel like thousands of people are critiquing, critiquing you in the moment. Um, <laughs> All right. So I'm Brett Terpstra. I am at uh, TT Scoff on Twitter and uh, everywhere else. And you can find me at brettterpstra.com. 
and all of my projects and my you know recipes that I'm starting to publish. And um, also check out uh, Systemcast on Twitter, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T. And then go to signup.systemcast.net to join the community and uh, pitch in top picks and talk about the, uh, the episodes and uh, sometimes even ask bizarre technical questions that you know people there are going to know. So thanks again, Bill. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And we'll see everybody in a week. Bye-bye.